you do me honor by inviting me and by coming here to listen to me. Yes, uh, in India Unbound, my last book, I was one of the first persons who predicted the economic rise of India. And when I did that 10 years ago, people thought I was smoking. <laughs> and today, if I were that sort of person, I would be saying, I told you so. <laughs> well, prosperity is spreading in India, as it is spreading in China and a number of third world countries. And really, the big news of the 21st century is not 9-11. The big news is the rise of China in India and the third world. And in this very century, we are going to see a convergence of standards of living uh, something that we have not experienced in 1750. But in 1750, we, were all, we all had the same standard of living, but we were all poor. Now we're going to be all rich. So the, that's the good news. The bad news is that all this prosperity in India is spreading in the most appalling in the, within the most appalling governance. Now, governance is not just about, some, about a minister who's caught with a bribe. It's much more sinister, and it affects the character far more. <clears throat> the, when I think of governance, I think of the, the very poorest person in society who wants to go and get a birth certificate and... Has to, she has to bribe somebody to do that. And you, don't, you shouldn't have to do that. And I could go on and on, give you lots of examples. You've just seen the corruption in the Commonwealth Games. And, uh, and, and so I don't really need to talk about, about corruption. Um, maybe I'll, we'll give one example. And that is the fact that one out of four school teachers does not show up in a government elementary school. And one out of four who shows up is not teaching. So half the elementary school teachers, that is 3.7 million of them, are not doing their job. But more than that, it's not just the failure of the institution. Because you, if you could punish one school teacher, the others would show up. It's also a moral failure. That, in other words, if they showed up, would they, sh would they teach with inspiration, saying that it's my dharma, it's my calling to inspire the next generation. So to understand all this for myself, I went to the ancient epic Mahabharat. Now, this is a pretty bizarre decision, most of you would say. Um, and why did I do that? Well, Mahabharat uh, is unique in engaging with the world of politics. Second, it is obsessed with the notion of dharma. Now, dharma... <coughs> Is, can mean, you know, as Americans, you know the word karma, many of you. But dharma you don't know. And dharma, 
really can mean law, it can mean duty, it can mean virtue, but essentially it is doing the right thing. And the Sanskrit epic, Mahabharat, is different from the Greek epic in one respect. In the Greek epics, like the Iliad and the Odyssey, you have a character who does something wrong, uh, and then he gets on with it. In the Mahabharat, the action stops, and the argumentative Indian takes over. And they discuss this, what went wrong. Oh, no, no, this was wrong. No, I disagree with you. And so what you have is very rich debate on what is right and what is wrong. And nobody says, let's ask God for the answer. Uh, in the Christian tradition, you have the commandments. You turn to the commandments. But here, you have to figure it out yourself. And when you have to figure it out yourself, your moral reasoning improves. And good moral reasoning is the foundation of good moral action. Finally, the word, the dharma, is does not seek moral perfection. It is pragmatic. And because it is pragmatic, it is suited for policy makers. And so this book is one man's search for dharma in the 21st century. And it is an attempt to really see both Dharma as private virtue, as individuals, but also public virtue, what we expect from our leaders. So <clears throat> what's, how, do, how do I go about this? Connecting governance failures, both in, the, in business as well as in, 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 in the political sphere, but, and also connecting it to Dharma and connecting it to uh, this ancient epic. Well, let me illustrate. <clears throat> the first chapter of my book is called Duryodhana's Envy. The story of the Mahabharat is about a rivalry within a royal family for the throne. And to contain that rivalry between two sets of cousins, children of two brothers, the kingdom is divided. The better half of the kingdom goes to the bad guys, the Kauravas. The worst half of the kingdom goes to the good guys. Now the good guys are diligent, hardworking, intelligent. They have good diplomatic skills. They have Arjuna, who's the great fighter, the greatest fighter of his time, the greatest warrior. So they expand their territories, they clear the forests, they build a beautiful capital, and suddenly they've become the most powerful kingdom on the earth. And then the eldest brother, Yudhishthir, he's told, you can now have a ceremony, a Rajasuya ceremony, consecrating you emperor, king of kings. And at this ceremony come nobles and kings bearing tribute and wealth to the Pandavas. 
also invited is the elder brother from the other side the bad guys duryodhan and when he sees all the power and the wealth of his cousins he grows envious accompanying him is his uncle shakuni who says my lord you grow pale and sick and he says listen to this metal will stand to see his rivals and his neighbors prosper and himself decline now that is an interesting statement because why should a human being decline just because his neighbor is prospering but he has captured an awful truth about us human beings for that is true all of us oh we when our friends do well we'll go and congratulate them but inside we don't like it and this envy comes in very early in life when i was 5 years old there was another boy in our neighborhood who had a red toy engine and i hated him for it and one day he was not looking i broke it they did a study at harvard with the class of 1987 and they asked them would you rather earn 100000 dollars a year or 50000 dollars they all said 100000 dollars but then they put a condition that if you earn 100000 dollars your friends will be earning 200000 but if you earn 50000 your friends will be earning 25000 do you know that 83% changed their answer they said they would rather earn 50 rather than 100 so you see how what irrational things envy does and today you know um we have this great discussion in this country and everywhere in the world about ceo salaries salaries of the uh, bonuses on wall street and some of you are members of boards as i am and once a year the job of a board member is to decide the salary of his ceo and the only question we ask every year is is our ceo earning more that's what we want to ensure more than the competitive company's ceo and so you see salaries have nothing to do with reward or needs of a person it has everything to do with envy you know you'll uh, you sympathize with jealousy because jealousy is my fear that my friend may run away with my wife i get jealous and you'll sympathize with me but envy just because somebody's doing well in life that i should feel diminished as duryodhan does is not really is something we all want to hide when i when i grew up i ran the procter and gamble company in india 
and our factory was next door to the factory of Philips. Philips, the lighting, electronics, Dutch company. And the Philips factory had been on strike for a whole year. And we were worried what was going to happen to us. And one day I heard the union leader of the Philips factory tell his workers that I don't care if we ever open this factory again as long as the Dutch factory manager goes down. And that is when I realized the truth of what they say, that if the sin of capitalism is greed, the sin of socialism is envy. And you only have to read the novels of the 1920s, 1930s Soviet Union to realize the envy that existed in that socialist society. In those days, everybody in Russia had the same apartment, they wore the same clothes, they ate the same food. One day, a woman got a very beautiful tablecloth. And she was an object of such envy of her neighbors that they practically killed her for owning that tablecloth. Now we've had a very celebrated fight in between two brothers in the most famous Indian business family, the Ambani's. If you read the list of the Forbes billionaires that comes out every year, Mukesh Ambani is now number two on that list, and his younger brother Anil is number nine on that list. And during this fight, people said, oh, it's greed. But I said, no, it is the younger brother's envy for the older brother, who he wants the world to think he's as good, as competent as his younger brother. Now, envy has a good side because it makes us competitive, do amazing things, as Anil has done, created some wonderful companies like Reliance Capital. But in the last couple of years, frankly, I felt that Anil Ambani wanted more to destroy his brother. And as one of the 4.8 million shareholders of Reliance, I was very worried. I did not understand how in 1930s Germany, decent middle class Germans were swayed by Hitler to do the most terrible things to the Jews until I read that more than 50% of the professionals of Berlin and Vienna were Jews, 64% of the physicians of Vienna, of Berlin, were Jews, 
when Jews accounted only 5%, less than 5% of the population. So that society was seething with envy. Now let's come back to the Mahabharata. So Shakuni says, Shakuni says that look, these Pandavas have become too powerful. We cannot take them on in a straight contest. So we'll have to use strategy. Now what does he mean by strategy? He says that I'm the greatest dice player in the world. Yudhishthir, the emperor, is the worst. But he's addicted to gambling. Moreover, you cannot lose because I cheat and nobody knows how. And so they have a dice game and to it comes the, all the kings and the nobles. And sure enough, Yudhishthir gambles and he loses his armies, he loses his horses, his slaves, he loses the entire kingdom, his brothers, himself and his wife, in this game of dice. <clears throat> to humiliate the, Kaurav, the Pandavas, the Kauravas drag in the queen, the wife, and they call her, now you are our slave, and we can enjoy you the way we want. But they do not realize that Draupdi, the queen, is no weeping queen. She's a feisty lady. And she asks a simple question to this assembly. Who did my husband lose first? Himself or me? And of course immediately they realize they've fallen into a trap because Yudhishthir had gambled himself first and by the law, he, when you've lost yourself, you are not competent to gamble anything because you don't possess anything. Anyway, the Kauravas are not going to be deterred by legal arguments. And one of them says, strip her. And the younger brother, Dushasan, gets up and starts pulling her sari. And as he pulls her sari, the sari begins to expand and he pulls and pulls and pulls and then after half an hour of huffing and puffing he sits down humiliated and the epic asks what happened here and the answer that it gives is that it was dharma that dharma also means cosmic justice that she was a good woman and she deserved this. When the 104 week serial on the Mahabharata was going on in, in all of India in the late 90s, 
the traffic would stop. On Sundays, 600 million people watched this. It had the highest ratings ever. And when this scene occurred, a clever Gujarati company in Bombay decided to market a Dropdi collection. But they did not, that company did not gain market share because I suppose the saris did not extend infinitely. <laughs> at this point, Dropdi gets very angry. And she looks at these kings, she looks at the grandfather, the grandfather of both sides, venerable, selfless, respected man. And basically she looks at them and she says, how could you let this happen? And tell me, what is the dharma of the king? And so she presents a mirror to us all to, our, to the rulers, to the civil servants, to the politicians, to the absentee school teachers. About, sh and she shows how we deceive ourselves, thinking when we are good when we are not. But everybody remains silent. And so she quotes a sage. Kashyap, who says that when a crime is committed, half the punishment goes to the person who commits the crime, a quarter of the punishment goes to the conspirator, the ally, but a quarter of the punishment goes to those who are, remain silent. Now when this, when I was working on this chapter in my book, the election for the president of India was taking place. The president of India is a ceremonial position. The power resides with the prime minister. It's like the queen of England. But a very respected person occupies this position. And so this government that is in power today announced uh, the nomination to be the president. We were all delighted. However, in the weeks before the election, we heard very uncomfortable news about the background of this lady. One report in the paper said that there had been a murder in which her husband had been implicated. Another report, which was reproduced in the Indian Express, talked about a bank that was owned by this family had gone bankrupt, and the reason, and they reproduced the letter of the liquidator of the bank in the papers, said that her family members had taken huge loans from the bank with no intention of paying them back. And that's why the bank had gone back bankrupt. And so some of us were very, very disturbed at this point. And I was writing a Sunday column in the Times of India. Times of India, by the way, is the largest newspaper in the world. 3.7 million circulation, 
on Sundays. That's almost double of the Wall Street Journal. And it has a readership of 12 million. And I wrote a column which said, don't be silenced. And it was an open letter to the prime minister in which I gave the recounted the story of Dropdi and the ever-extending sari. And then I quoted the sage Kashapa who talked about the punishment to the silent, a quarter of the punishment going to the silent. So I, to, I said to the Prime Minister, look, it's not too late. The election is one week away. You can still nominate another woman. There are 500 million women in India. And, but of course, a week later, nothing happened. We had a new president elected because the party in power had the votes. But that day, we replaced the most popular president in Indian history, Abdul Kalam. And many of us in India felt diminished. It's a tribute to the Indian media, which we criticize a lot. We have 67 news channels, by the way, 24 by 7 news channels. So imagine having to manufacture that much news every day <laughs> uh, in all the languages. The, I mean, I think the reason what the media did was that after that day, they never mentioned the background of this woman. It was out of respect for the office of the president. And I think sometimes when I've been here, I've been here of a month in this country, and I, I think Fox News could learn something <laughs> from this behavior of how you treat your president, your high officials. Anyway, so let's come back to the Mahabharat. And now the Pandavas are in the forest. They have uh, been punished for losing the game of dice and exile for 13 years. And the queen, Draupdi, sees her husband sleeping on the hard earth. And she says, my heart weeps for you, you who've always slept on sheets of silk and pillows of down. They had goose down pillows in those days also and waited by hundreds of retainers. And she asks her husband, is this what the world is all about? That the good people suffer and those who steal our kingdom in a rigged game of dice should be occupying palaces. It's very similar to the question that uh, a woman a few years ago asked me. She was an exporter from a town not far from Delhi, Sonipat, and she had lost her job. And she said, that is, why should I suffer 
when all those bad deeds were done by those guys on Wall Street and we had this global financial crisis. So she tells her husband, Dropti, she says, she has a bias for action, like a good CEO. And she says, look, let's go and win back our kingdom. Let's collect an army and win back our kingdom which has been stolen from us in a rigged game of dice. And besides, she says, it is your dharma. You are a warrior. And a warrior's dharma is to wage a just war. And our cause is just. He refuses. He says, no, my dharma is that I have given my word to go into exile and so I must honor my word. Now you see how the Mahabharat has transposed two different meanings of dharma. One is a social virtue, meaning I'm a warrior, my job is my duty is to wage a just war. Another is that I've given my word something inside a conscience that speaks. And Dropti gets very confused by this. And she wonders, is her husband a coward or what? The next day, their uncle comes to visit them, Vidura. Vidura is a royal counselor. He tried very hard to prevent this game of dice. And so she asks him, you tell us what is dharma how do you know when something is right and something is wrong and Vidura says well when, when an action takes place I look at the results, the consequences and if it helps the people then it's dharma if it harms them then it's adharma it's bad <clears throat> So she still doesn't understand her husband and wonders why he doesn't look at the consequences. He's thinking of something inside his conscience. And then there's a very interesting discussion of what is right and wrong, what is dharma in this case. And really to understand this discussion... I'll tell you something that happened a few years ago. Uh, a child was drowning off a beach in Goa. And a young man jumped into the ocean and saved this child. And the reporter from the Times of India went to this uh, young man and said, You're a hero. Why did you do it? And he sheepishly admits that he says, look, we are a college party which has come from Hindu college in Delhi and frankly, I was trying to impress a girl in our group. <laughs> and the reporter says, but then you're not a hero. Vidura would have said, the child was saved. Dharma was done. 
So why are you worried about his motivation? Yudhishthir, however, would have jumped in even if nobody was looking. So you see this discussion. Now this is a classical, uh, if you, some of you know Western philosophy, this is a classical uh, sort of dis- uh, dispute between those who look at the consequences of the action to measure what is good and right versus those who look at the motivation of the actor in doing so. <clears throat> and this is what I meant, how the Mahabharat helps you to improve your moral reasoning. So 13 years go by and now the Pandavas come back to reclaim their kingdom. <clears throat> but Duryodhan, the, the king of the Kauravas, refuses. And so a war becomes, becomes inevitable. They have peace negotiations, but they fail. And the Pandavas one night declare war. <clears throat> On the first day of the war, there's a celebrated scene which many of you will recognize as the first scene of the Gita. Gita is the most famous philosophical poem in the world. And in this scene, uh, the commander of the Pandavas, Arjuna, the greatest warrior of his times, tells his charioteer, Krishna, to take him to a spot where he can see both the armies both sides. And he sees on the enemy side, he sees his uncles, his grandfather, his teachers. He sees those he played ball with when he was young. And he realizes that he's going to have to kill them. And suddenly he's filled with pity and remorse and he says I won't fight I can't kill them and it is the unenviable duty of his charioteer the god Krishna to convince him in the next 700 fratricidal verses (laughs) now we have debated who was right? Krishna's arguments are that it's your, one of the arguments is like Draupadi, it's your duty. You know, it's your duty. We sent you to West Point and now you've got to fight. And a few years ago, I was invited by the Pentagon and a number of generals were there and they were interested about the economic rise of India. And one of the generals was very well read and he knew about this particular scene. And he asked me, he said, explain to me how can the commander refuse to fight before his greatest moment It's like Eisenhower saying before the Normandy landings that I won't fight. He tells his driver he won't fight. 
So I explained to him that Arjuna is not just a commander, not just a general. He's also a political leader. He was, he's one of the brothers. He was in the war cabinet the night before when they declared war. And what this episode is showing to me, at least, is that uh, we want our political leaders to consider the moral dimension of their decisions. Now, the night, you know, Mr. Bush take you, took you to a war in Iraq a few years ago. And there must have been a war cabinet meeting the night before. There must have been there Mr. Cheney, Mr. Rumsfeld, Mr. Wolfowitz, and all the distinguished members of the cabinet. And they must have debated the economic consequences of the war, the oil in Iraq, the political consequences, Israel, Palestine, and all these things. But I bet you nobody said that night that tomorrow we are going to war and we are going to kill a lot of people. And some of those who will die will be innocent civilians and some of those who will die will be our own people. Now they may still take us to wars at the end, but as citizens, we want them also, when they do their cost-benefit analysis, we want them also to consider the moral dimension of their things. Now in India, of course, we've been debating this episode for a long time. And of, and of course, the general's point of view, which is also the God's point of view, Krishna's point of view, always wins. And the reason it wins is because Krishna is a God, <laughs> frankly, not because his arguments are so powerful. Anyway, you see what I'm trying to do in this book, that I go back and forth and I take the story forward, but then I stop and look at how it affects our lives and what we can learn from it. My story won't be complete until I talk about everybody's favorite character in the Mahabharat. And so before I close, let me talk about Kar Karna or Karan. You know, he's a, I see all these, all the Indians nodding their heads. And a lot of Indian mothers name their children Karan or Karna. And I often wonder why they do that because Karna is such a tragic figure, frankly. I mean, I can understand why every fifth Indian is called Arjun. You know, Arjun's a success. I mean, he's CEO material. <laughs> Nobody calls their children Yudhishthir, the good man. So Indian mothers have decided they'd rather have successful sons rather than good sons. <clears throat> anyway, um, Karna's story is, is uh, some of you know, that he was born eldest son of Kunti who's the mother of the Pandavas the good guys now he was born illegitimately because Kunti the mother had received a boon a mantra 
from uh, a sage. And she, if the, the, the boon was that if she were childless, she could have a baby from a god, fathered by a god. And when she's before her marriage, she was experimenting with this, you know, a curious young girl, curi- experimenting. And she's looking at the sun and, and reading this mantra. And suddenly, nine months later, she has a baby born from the sun god. And she's horrified and scared. And so she puts this baby in a basket, wraps him up nicely, gives him a kiss, and floats him in the river. And down the river, the baby is picked up by a charioteer. So a royal prince grows up as a low-caste boy. However, um, he has enormous talent and he's ambitious. In those days, if you had talent and ambition, you didn't become a CEO. You became a warrior, the greatest. And Karna becomes the greatest warrior on the earth, even greater than Arjuna. But he thinks and everybody thinks that he is a low-caste charioteer's son. So he's constantly slighted. He wants to be accepted as a kshatriya. They won't sit next to him. And so there is the pain of a person who is growing up low-caste in a caste society. Are we running out of time? I think so. Okay, so it, another five minutes, it's all over. Uh, so, Karan falls in love with Dropti. This is before she was married. And Dropti was a beautiful woman, and so all the nobles and princes and kings vied for her hand. And her father created a contest at her bride choice ceremony, which was to lift a very heavy bow and strike at a moving target. And everybody failed except Karna. So he thought he had won a royal princess. And he went up to be garlanded by her. And when he did that, she said, I won't marry a Sutaputra, meaning a charioteer's son. And his face dropped. And that unrequited sexual yearning for Draupadi continues right through the epic. Now, Karna's story is, on the one hand, the story of being low caste in a caste society. But it is also the story of all of us. It's a universal problem that we all face. And that is a problem of status anxiety. That is to say that we all want to be somebody. We don't want to be nobody. When we are babies, there's no problem. Our mothers love us, whether we break our toys, whether we cry, whether we burp. But when we grow up, we are judged 
for our status, for our achievements, for, our, for what we are, or what we have achieved, or whatever. And snobs have a great capacity for snobs like Dropdi have a great capacity for inflicting pain on us. And so what Karna's story shows is a very universal human problem that our is held hostage to the opinion of others. And that's why a friend of my aunt used to say that you wouldn't worry so much what others are thinking of you if only you realize that they don't. They're thinking what others are thinking of them and those others are thinking what others are thinking of them and nobody's thinking about you. So, anyway, um, before I leave Karna's story, do you remember that uh, when the war became inevitable, the peace negotiations failed. At that moment, Krishna, the God, realizes that these good guys, the Pandavas, are going to lose this war because of Karna on the other side. And so he goes to Karna to tell him who he is in order to make him switch sides. So he tells him, you're not a son of a chariot. You're a, royal, you're a prince. You're a warrior, first of all. You're a kshatriya. He always yearned to be a kshatriya. You're a royal kshatriya. And you're the eldest. So with you and Arjuna on our side, we will conquer the earth and we'll win this war. And when we do, you will be, as you are the eldest, you will be king. And Dropdi will be yours. Everything he always wanted. But you know what he does? He refuses to switch sides, saying that your mother is not the one who gives birth to you, but the one who brings you up. Now the Mahabharat is a Dark's story. There's a war, everybody dies. The victors have to rule over an empty kingdom for 35 years. But it is in moments like these that the Mahabharata snatches victory, like the story of Karna. At the end of the epic, Yudhishthira is going to heaven. And on the way, a, a, a dog, a stray dog, attaches itself to him. When they reach heaven, the, the heaven keeper, Indra, comes out and he says, Welcome, great king. And Yudhishthira, the emperor, instead of going in, he says, But what about this dog? And the heaven keeper, the god Indra, says, But it's even your dog. Besides, this is heaven, no dogs allowed. <laughs> and Yudhishthira wonders. What kind of place is this heaven which does not understand the ABC of Dharma? That if somebody comes to you for help, you help him out. 
Now, I bet you nobody in this room would have done what he did. He refused to go into heaven. But every child in every culture will understand the meaning of dharma from this story. And so what is the Mahabharata telling us? It is saying that, look, it's a dark world. Human beings are flawed. It's difficult to know dharma. But an act of goodness is one of the very few things we possess. And we better know when to recognize it. Thank you. We do have time for just a couple of questions. So uh, if you need help, I'll plant one because I, I have one I've been. Sir, back here. Yes, uh huh. Starts with uh, uh, Dharma Kshetre Kurukshetre. Yeah. I'm assuming that's said by Dhritarashtra to Sanjaya. I think. Yeah. And so when Dhritarashtra calls Kurukshetra as Dharma Kshetra, yeah. what Dharma is he referring to? Uh, can you put that in context of what happens? Yeah. Well, what he's basically saying is this war is not just a war on a battlefield of Kurukshetra, it is also a war in our minds, it's a war of Dharma of right and wrong. And it's a war that all of us face every day in our work lives, in our private lives. It's the kind of war that, uh, you know, a few... It's a kind of dilemma that uh, a few... A a month ago, in September, I was in Singapore. My granddaughter lives in Singapore. And my granddaughter is five years old. And she asked her... She just, she told her mother, mother, you just told a lie. And her mother had been speaking on the telephone. And she had told the woman on the other side that, look, I'm sorry, I cannot come to your house for dinner because I'm sick. And the little girl was reminding her mother that uh, you're not sick. And I had to explain to the young girl, to my granddaughter, that your mother did a deed of dharma because she did not want to tell the woman on the other side that, look, you're a boar, your friends are boars, and I don't want to get bored on Saturday night. <laughs> and what she was doing was she was protecting her. And therefore, the, the duty of being honest was trumped by the duty to protect another human being. Ahimsa, which is what is non-violence, protecting another, was more important in that case. At one point, the Mahabharata suggests that civilization is based on white lies. Uh, You just mentioned, you know, before we had a president in India, the media was opposed to it, and then after that, they stopped. And over here, you know, Fox is still going on. Um, In my opinion, that will be a dharma of the people, those who were opposing, even though she became the president. Uh, So I just wanted to know a little bit more, not for the respect of the president, the office she held, 
but because of the fearness, I would say the media has stopped. I don't because know. of fear? Fear, yeah. No, 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 no. The media in India has done very bad things. Well, well, I but, assure but, you, and it's not fear. No, they, but what about the adharma, you know, because uh, they shouldn't stop. If they, they should fe- not stop? Yes. Well, I think that's a questionable thing. You may think that it's right to uh, talk about your president in very nasty language. I disagree. I feel there should be some respect that we owe once a person occupies. At least you should refer to that person in a respectful way. You may, not, you may disagree, but there's a certain decorum in public life that we must observe. Uh, this was this was wonderful. Um, I uh, my question really was around um, the conflict between truth and duty, uh, the truth and dharma. And in some sense, I guess you can pick whichever argument at the point in time that you are arguing suits you in some form, right? And I guess your example here about the child, um, mm. you know, uh, and your granddaughter also makes. You know, it's so. So I wanted to ask you about you know when you look at the epic and you look at how we conduct our lives. At what point? Um, does the balance tip over and, you know, should yeah. you pick one over the other? Well, I think, you know, we all face these dilemmas every day. And the, the, what we like, especially from our CEOs, from our senior uh, leaders in our society, our political leaders, is to at least consider some of these issues when they do their cost-benefit analyses. Um, and, you know, a lot of us may not agree with Yudhishthar when he told Dropti that, look, I've given my word. I'm not going to, let's, you know, I'm not going to fight. Uh, Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Uh, the, the Corvus, we may disagree, but... His reasons for doing so, we can admire. And, uh, and I think that's what, I mean, he, he says at one point to her that I act because I must. And that shows a very a moral compass, a highly developed moral compass. I act because I must. I mean, he would have jumped into the ocean to save that child. And so I think we would like our leaders. Some, I mean, this doesn't mean that you don't go to war. This doesn't, he's the, Yudhishthira is the one who finally gave the, the, the order to go to war. Uh, but I just feel that, a, that we would like not only leaders, but for a better world, for all of us, to think about these things. And at one point, the Mahabharata actually asks this question. It says, how do we get people to behave in the right way? How do we get people to behave with dharma? Because all these bad deeds are going on around all the time. And so this person is very perplexed. And so 
Well, the other guy says, well, you have to start young. You have to teach them when they're young. And, uh, and he explains. He says, well, if you tell a child that you did something wrong, chances are the next time the child may do the right thing. And then slowly it will get into the habit. It will repeat that action and it will become a habit. And then you have what the Mahabharata calls swabhava, meaning an inclination to behave in a certain way, to do the right thing. And that inclination to do the right thing then becomes your character and your character becomes your destiny. Now that's as good a, good a meaning of the law of karma that I have come across, that actions you do early impinge on your character and your destiny. Thank you very much. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.